This is the Life of Jesus podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. For a full year, we are looking at the life, teachings, and works of Jesus from the four Gospels put together in one chronological flow. Ben, for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's by far the longest sermon or speech that we have from Jesus. And I'm going to break it up into three segments. This first one is really focused on our identity, that is who we are in Christ. And the second one will be what we do. And the third one, how we live. Yeah, they they do kind of bleed into one another. But of course, his message bleeds into each other as well. So let's just begin with the first part of that. It's in the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. And it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. We've already established that his disciples were probably more than just the 12 apostles. Mm -hmm. There might have been a lot of people who were there. And he begins to teach them what we know as the Beatitudes. This is a a bit of an identity of who we are, our, our identity and who we are. And he, he names some attributes which are not the kind of things that are lifted up in culture. In fact, you're United Methodist pastor, so we don't really do resumes. We get appointed by bishops, and they, they tell us where to go and stuff. But have, have you ever filled out a resume for a I, job? I have. You know, my, my uh, tradition was not the United Methodist Church, and so the, the first United Methodist Church I got hired at, I had to send them uh, a resume. They were looking for somebody outside the box, and I guess they found me. So when they, when they said things like, you know, what are your strengths, you know, the, all the typical things or, or the things you put on your resume, your, your strengths there, did, did you put things like poor in spirit and mourn and those kind of things? Uh, no, I put everything is awesome. All is well. All is well. Yeah. Uh, You've got great hops. You know, you can yeah. dunk it over LeBron, stuff like that. Then, yeah, all those things. Yeah, sure. yeah absolutely. So these, these attributes that are lifted up here are, I think by the world standards, pretty weak, right? The blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Verse 5, blessed are the meek. What's what's going on here with these these kind of things being lifted up by Jesus? As far as you can tell, that he's lifting these things up as attributes that we would often see as things we want to get out of as quickly as possible. Mourning, for example. Right, right. Well, and part of it is is I, I look at uh, most of these through the lens of how do they relate uh, to our relationship with God. And so when I see poor in spirit, it's the recognition of dependence on God. It's not a physical poverty, but a recognition of my own spiritual poverty and my need uh, for the Lord. Or when I see, you know, those who mourn, the idea, do I grieve sin in my life? And so as I I look at these, as I see the Beatitudes, one of the things that I, I recognize there, the way I've come to understand them is through the lens of how do they relate uh, to my relationship with God. And so we, you know, we think about uh, blessed are the meek. 
And a lot of times people will uh, see that as, uh, you know, almost as like folks who are just completely soft. They get, you know, the meek are the ones that get run over. And I, one of the things that I consider in relationship to that is that the Apostle Paul was meek. And we put Paul and meek together, and most people would think that that's some sort of contradiction. And yet, how does Paul, a revelation of meekness, it's because of his humility before God, his willingness to and desire to be faithful to God, uh, to be one who is approved by God, not by man. And so we see the Apostle Paul, uh, we see those who are ultimately faithful in their relationship uh, to God through Christ as those who are ex- exercising complete and utter humility uh, before God. How, how does this list that Jesus puts together here stand in contrast not only to what the Pharisees were teaching back in the day, but to what we sometimes hear now, here in the day? Yeah, I think sometimes we, we think of uh, poverty in itself. Um, can, that's what it says in Luke, by the way. Right. Luke chapter 6, the Sermon on the Plain, it says, blessed are you who are poor. Poor, right. So what's the deal with that? Right, and I think that in Luke chapter 6, we see blessed are the poor juxtaposed with uh, the, uh, um, the woe on the backside, woe to those who are rich. And so I see that as... Uh, being related to those who who are who have ultimately pursued wealth uh, as a means of their own personal satisfaction, self gratification, um, and in speaking there in Luke uh, to the apostles, the the recognition that we are not in this game, we are not seeking to be faithful to God to live out as my disciples. This is not a means toward wealth. It is not a means toward personal gain. Because in both cases, there's a large crowd of disciples who were listening. Right. And they had to be hoping for a leader or a Messiah to come along who would level the playing ground and and bring them out of their abject poverty right. or brokenness in spirit before the oppressive Roman government. Right. They were looking for somebody, weren't they, that was going to maybe equalize things just a bit. And Jesus speaks to these large crowds of people and says things like, blessed are you who are poor. And over Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit. I don't know if they started cheering at that moment or not, Mm -hmm. because it just seems like it wasn't the message they were hoping for. It wasn't the message they were expecting. It might have, you think it was a disappointment? As they are wrestling with these truths that Jesus is is uh, spouting, yeah, absolutely. I think in their own mind, you know, the Messiah is going to return them to the land flowing with milk and honey. The Messiah is going to return them to a sovereign nation. The Messiah is going to return uh, them to a seat of, uh, uh, I, I think in their own minds, of, of global power, global prominence. Um, and so, yeah, the idea that uh, the, the, the things of this physical material world would take, uh, or, or would be ultimately second fiddle to what God desires for us in, in our life. Um, that true health, that true wholeness, that true, uh, 
abundance comes through this relationship ultimately with Christ, um, and as that's being manifested in us uh, to the world. Yeah, because we even do these things now, right? Like if somebody is doing well, their family's doing well, they get a promotion at work, we say, you must be living right. Right. We, we gauge our, the blessings from God measured up against our successes in the world. But these blessings are very different from those, as you've just described. I just, I just think it's pretty interesting. So Jesus gives us this list, and, and we'll let you as listeners uh, go on and, and read the, all of them in Matthew chapter 5. They're in verses 3 through 12. And then over in the, the other place, the blessing, uh, I'm sorry, the, the Sermon on the Plain would be in Luke chapter 6. And it's in verses 17 through 26. So Matthew 5, Luke 6, take a look at those. Now let's, let's shift gears a little bit. Jesus goes on in the message, and he begins to look at the people themselves and tell them who they are. He says to those who are listening, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, he had just told them that you're blessed if internally you are aligned with the things of God. But now he begins to tell them that they're more than just, it's not just me and Jesus. It's, it's not that. Me and the Holy Spirit, me and God, it's not that. You're responsible in some ways for the earth, for the world, for, for all the people around that you as a follower, he says, are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. What, what does that message tell us today about who we are in Christ and what our responsibility is when we take up this call to follow him? Yeah, it, is my life, ultimately is my life identified with Jesus. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1 will say, to live is Christ. And so is my life intimately identified with Jesus? Do people know me? Do people see me through the lens of my relationship uh, with my Savior? Um, that's where my saltiness uh, should come from, um, in, in a good sense of the term. That's where, you know, Jesus is the light of the world. Uh, in him, there is no darkness. And so the, the more intimately I am identified in Christ, the more intimately my life is being renewed into the likeness of Christ, the brighter my light for Christ, not for myself, not for the sake of, uh, of myself or for the sake of my own means, but for the sake of, uh, of Jesus, my light will burn more brightly. It's almost a responsibility then for our light to burn brightly in the world around us, but there isn't there a temptation for us to look at to look at our faith through the lens of self-centeredness? What can God do for me? How can God bless me? What are what are the beatitudes for me in my life? What what are the ways that the Lord can give to me what I want out of my life? I, there's a there's just a story just comes to mind, and in one of my previous churches, I was a young pastor and. My, my wife was with me, my bride was with me, Lisa, and 
she went and sat down in, in one of the pews and getting ready for my very first sermon there. And she was waiting for the service to begin. We were brand new, first Sunday there. Nobody knew who we really were. And somebody came up and tapped my wife on the shoulder as, as an older woman and said, honey, this is my seat. And so the pastor's wife, she didn't know it was the pastor's wife, but the pastor's wife stood up and went and sat somewhere else, I guess, where she wouldn't be in that person's seat. And, and, I, and I wonder if like that's a story which is deep sort of within a lot of us, is to say, no, this is, this is my group. This is my class. This is my church. This is my life as opposed to this language of, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the whole world. You're responsible for more than just yourself. As Jesus begins his first major sermon here, it's a pretty in-your-face message. I, th- I think we're so used to the language. We sing song, you know, there are songs, and there are plays written about it. You're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. But to really understand, like, this is a call way outside of yourself. For them, it would mean you are the light of the Roman Empire, too. You're the light of your oppressors. Mm-hmm. You're the light of your neighbors. You're responsible for those around you. Folks do. I mean, I think there's a, an issue uh, within, within the church itself. And, and when I say church, I mean Big C Church, where we have uh, sometimes nurtured, uh, nurtured uh, our our brothers and sisters in Christ to see their life through the lens that, at least in practice, uh, we are living, where we have this sense that that God exists to make much of me and exists for my glory, uh, rather than me uh, again being transformed into the likeness of Christ as a means to make much of God in my life, to make much of Christ uh, through my life, to live out my life uh, for the sake uh, of his glory. And we see it even in how we pray. You know, so many of our prayers are bent, and not that we should not pray for our physical wellness or for our physical wholeness, but so many of the prayers throughout the throughout Scripture are rooted in us growing in the knowledge and likeness of Jesus Christ. And yet, those words seem to be far uh, from us in our life of prayer to where the, the whole of our desire is not to so much grow into the likeness of, of Christ, but the whole of our desire is for God to live into my will and into my desire. Um, and so my prayer life becomes, uh, I mean, ultimately nothing more than treating God like a genie or like, you know, the divine vending machine where, you know, I insert my prayer and get out of it whatever it is that I think is, is good, right, and whole. If we prayed with that kind of fervor for our neighbors, for our communities, yeah. for our nation, for our world, those prayers would be pretty powerful and effective, I, I would think. Jesus goes on in, in verse 17, and he begins now to talk about himself. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Just a couple of words that are tossed out, the law and the prophets. What, what does this stand for, the law and the prophets? Um, it, well, it, it points back to that, 
the what we talked about um, in our previous podcast that that Jesus is ultimately uh, the fulfillment of the scriptures. He is the fulfillment of the law in that he has he lives faithfully in uh, to the law. Uh, all of the prophets point to Christ. When we read the Old Testament, there are pieces and portions of the Old Testament, you know, especially within a lot of the prophetic books that in reading them, you would think if if no one knew where you were pulling that passage from, that piece of scripture from, people would just think that you're reading straight out of the New Testament because it is so vivid and points so uh, so vividly to Christ. You would think that you're reading it uh you're you're reading it out of the New Testament itself. Yeah. So the the laws, the first five books of right. the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the all the prophets that are listed as well. Sometimes the writings will be named as well. The historical books, and in essence, as we have already spoken, that all of Scripture points to Jesus. So he. He clearly says here, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This, is, this was heresy to those who were the religious authorities of the day. But it was a, a proclamation that all of Scripture, really even all of history, finds its center point in the life of Jesus. He goes on in verse 18, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. It's going to take place. He fills it full. He fulfills it in his life. And then we're in Matthew 5, verse 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So there is a sense of obedience, even though there's freedom from the tyranny of a rules-bound system. There is a sense where you have to practice them. You have to carry them out. You have to live them out, the, the, the words and the ways of Jesus in your life that makes a, a massive difference for, well, according to Jesus, you're standing in the kingdom of heaven. Walk me through that one a little bit. Yeah, I mean, God's love compels a life that is lived uh, for the Lord, where I, having experienced the, the fullness of God's love, having experienced the, the redemptive love of God, mediated to us through Christ, that should compel us to, uh, to, to live for him, to long for our, our hearts and our lives, to, to cherish all that God cherishes, to love all that God loves, uh, to where, again, we see the law not as some noose around our neck judging us, uh, because Christ has, has ultimately borne the judgment we deserve, but we see the law as uh, as what we want ultimately our hearts uh, to reflect. We we want our hearts to reflect the goodness of God. We want our hearts to reflect the the moral ethic of, of God, not because it's burdensome, but because it's born of God, 
who is uh, fully, um, he is the author of love. And in that, he is the author of all truth, and his truth is not devoid of his love. They, there's a mutuality uh, there. And so these are the th- things that we should, uh, as, as Jesus said earlier in the uh, Beatitudes, we should hunger and thirst after yeah. these things. Yeah, I love that. To, to want him more than anything, no matter what, and to want to follow him more than anything, no matter what. I, I remember a story when I was in high school, there was uh, the, the toughest kid in our, in our school, and he came up to me one day, and he looked at me straight in the eyes, and he said, Mark, I hate you. And I, I remember thinking, well, you know, I've had a pretty good life. You know, <laughs> this might be the end of it right here. And I'm not even really joking very much because he was, you know, he was, he was a pretty strong and big and tough kid. And I said, well, can you just tell me why you hate me? Because I can't rem- remember ever doing anything to you. And he looked at me and said, it's because you're so good. I said, well, what are you talking about? You know what? That God stuff. I wonder if this is how Jesus felt when the Pharisees were trying to do away with him, to kill him. They were mad at him because he said Scripture is fulfilled in him. He was claiming to be the the Son of God, equal with God himself. And they said, Jesus, we hate you. But he certainly didn't back down because here in chapter 5, verse 20, he tells the crowd, and you know there were some Pharisees listening in. They were always there. He tells the crowd, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I can't tell you that I was quite that bold with uh, my experience back in the day when somebody confronted me, but Jesus was not backing down here. As we see things are heating up in his life, he looks at them, he uses them as an illustration and says, don't be like them. Their righteousness is outward, it's constructed, it's for show. Your righteousness has got to be deep and within. Yeah, and what I, I think the, the Sermon on the Mount exposes, I mean, ultimately, is as, as Jesus is, I mean, ulti- he's pointing to the Pharisees and saying, you know, your, your righteousness, the, the righteousness of the Pharisees in itself is not enough to get you into, uh, to, to enter into the kingdom uh, of heaven, which I, I imagine those who were there that day, obviously the Pharisees are set off by this, but those who were there that day um, were probably you know, a little bit perplexed by that because if anybody was righteous, the Pharisees uh, were righteous. Uh, But that's really what the Sermon on the Mount uh, does. And as we head into these verses uh, for next week, one of the things the Sermon on the Mount exposes uh, to us is that uh, we need a righteousness that is outside of ourselves Mm. because the Sermon on the Mount exposes our unrighteousness. As Jesus gets to really the heart of the law in these verses that we'll look at. What what do you mean by outside of ourselves? We need, I in myself will never 
be righteous before God. That I need to be ultimately clothed in the righteousness of Christ, where Jesus' righteousness is credited to me. And so when I talk about a righteousness outside of myself, I speak of the righteousness that has come to us uh, through, uh, through Christ. And so it's the idea in my, you know, one of the ways I relate this to folks is that um, if I was going to buy a house, uh, my righteous, and it was dependent upon my righteous uh, credit score, uh, my righteous credit score would be zero under the law. And so what God ultimately does for us in, in Christ is that Jesus has a perfect righteousness credit score, right? And so Jesus qualifies us for the kingdom of heaven. I can't qualify myself, so Jesus qualifies us by crediting his righteous credit score to us. And therefore, I am set free to enter the kingdom of heaven by the righteousness of Jesus. Well, you must have a nice house. It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. It's a great it's a great image because that's what that's what the gospel teaches us, right? Jesus said, In my father's house, there's all kinds of rooms, mansions that I've constructed for you. That's a great image to end on. Well, folks, thank you for listening today. In episode twelve, the next one, we're gonna take a look at a little bit more of this story. We're going to move from the who we are to what we do. Just little things like anger, lust, getting even, stuff like that, Ben. You ready to go for that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. So folks, if you want to jump in deeper, go to our church's website, fishersumc.org or our church app and click on the Life of Jesus link. That'll take you to more elements of this year-long study of the life of Jesus, such as daily readings from the Gospels, devotions, poems that match those, as well as the weekly sermons and other episodes of this podcast. We hope that you have a wonderful week, and we'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.